Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello? Hi, Catherine. Are you ready to talk to me? Mm-hmm. I look forward to our conversations um, all the time. You still do? Oh, yeah. I know you said you were getting tired of me and you weren't, you know, looking forward to speaking with me anymore. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But today, 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 um, today we're going to talk about what the data is telling us about what's going on and try to understand how <laughs> we got into this situation where our national numbers peaked and then they were falling mm-hmm. and now they're just like spiking up to even worse than they were in April. And we want to understand well, what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's very disturbing. They sort of started slightly to slope downward nationally um, and then shot right back up. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the situation now is like, why are we having this exponential surge and what does it mean? Yeah. The virus there's so much variability in what it does mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. where it spreads and how many people a single person might spread it to and how infectious contagious you are and how in what degree of disease it causes that it, it's really really hard to explain from a medical level and hard to predict mm-hmm. so the best predictions about where we're going are coming from data so speaking of data do you remember when there were these models at the beginning uh, do you remember i think this was the imhe model Oh, um, I was really into the modeling at the beginning because it was really helpful in understanding the scope. And when you, we first looked at this in March and April, it was like this big curve up, a slow slope down, and then flat from like late summer on. Flat at, at zero? Uh, yeah, or very, very low, v- uh. like very, very low. It kind of implied that the pandemic would be over by yeah. summer. And then there were, you know, fears about a second wave and stuff, but it was like, we're definitely, this wave will end. Right. But the IMHE just yesterday updated its model, and I'm looking at it right now, and it shows that we, like, all of the lines just go up and up and up. Yeah. Um, And it's projecting now over 200,000 deaths by November 1st in the U.S. Huh. Where does Um, it end? Okay, end. now 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 the model instead of like going to some theoretical like endpoint, now the line just goes straight up off the corner of the page. Uh-huh. Yeah, no that makes more sense to me. The the first model would be would be in a country like South Korea. I actually am looking at their model, the the same the IMHE model for Korea and it went up and down in March and April, tapered off through May, June, July, and basically almost functionally disappears by August first. Yeah, that's what you would expect that would have been of ideal. a country with a functioning health system. Okay, so I think uh, we should give Alexis a call. Alexis is a staff writer here and the co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, which is basically the (laughs) go-to source for tracking state-level 
data in the U.S. on testing and positivity rates and deaths. So we're going to check in with him about what the data is showing him and how he's analyzing what might happen next. Every day, Alexis is chomping on this data, cracking it down, breaking it down. And he's gaining this huge knowledge base that eventually mm-hmm. will make his head enormous and it will, he will be the one to be like, here's what we need to do. I also think he lives in a van. <laughs> he may or may not. We'll find out about that too. Hello. Hey, Alexis. Where are you? Uh, I am in a small town in Colorado. Um, which is like right near the Rocky Mountain National Park. Wait, so d- you decided to go out here to see family, essentially? Yeah, to be to with see family? family and, you know, the kids obviously don't have camp or anything like that. And we were like, well, we got the grandparents here um, as mm-hmm. long as we can do it safely. And so we rented a camper van, had it sit, sterilized, uh, loaded up the camper van, and basically using like a combination of like hip camp and, you know, I overlander and other things, looked for campsites that... Are these some applications for... F- these are some applications for your telephone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. And so I booked some sites. Uh, it really, it was really only two nights. Um, we camped at this uh, farm in Vernal, Utah, which was also pretty awesome. You know, there were all these, uh, just like it, it sounded like the birds, like in the tent, you know, that I was sleeping yeah. in. It was like a parody of like bird song all around me. And there oh were like God. rabbits and pigs and cows and stuff. And it, it was, sounds so nice. Yeah. Wait, then so, we, and then we drove here. Yeah. So that was it. You know, we had like pretty um, intense protocols when we stopped for gas. Um, yeah. I mean, let me ask you about this. Cause I feel like there is a lot of controversy around people traveling during mm-hmm. this time, how do you actually do it safely? Like, what are your tips for doing it as safely as possible? I mean, this was, you know, for do me... Do you have to rent a camper van and never go in, never, <laughs> like, interact with any other human? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just about, like, risk reduction, which meant primarily, you know, being really careful about the surfaces that we were touching when we were in uh, public places getting gas, which was basically just getting gas. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about avoiding... I'm always very careful... Yeah. When I'm inside the gas station touching things. Totally. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, this seems like just a generally good idea, yeah. but also uh, especially heightened. One rule we had was no uh, bathrooms on the road. Ah. Um, so That's interesting with small children. Yeah, they just learned how to poop outside. Uh, we actually had a, t- a toilet with us, but we ended up not really using Son, it. Son, it's time we talked about something. Huh. <laughs> It's time you learn how to do a deep, deep squat. Yeah. Um, that brings me to a point from a listener. <clears throat> After listening to the episode with Alexis heading to Colorado in his van, I sit here, a resident of rural Colorado, and wonder, why is he heading to my state? <laughs> we currently have 15 cases and zero deaths. This was in June. Yeah. Um, anyway. As I imagine you soiling the side of the road. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we're not really uh, planning on interacting with uh, any of the population here. Like, But our, you did just leave sort of a trail of 
toilet plumes. <laughs> well, we did clean it up, guys. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm sure you were good about it. I, I did. Yeah. I replied no, no. to him like I'd trust no one to be more vigilant and responsible than Alexis. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, it was it was pretty. I, I thought we were pretty good. Essentially, we probably had a grand total of two minutes of indoor time. We went in to get a Gatorade and Dramamine at one point because our son was throwing up everywhere, mm-hmm. which was our only unplanned thing was buying Dramamine. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I kind of felt like, you know, you start multiplying those very small uh, risks out and you get to a very, very low risk. Yeah. And I actually, I got a, I got a COVID test before we left. So now at this point, I'm not really expecting to get it back for a long time, which we can talk about later. Well, maybe that's what we should talk about right now. So, as I've mentioned, you're kind of the, the, um, what the hell is that guy's name? John Bon Jovi. The Tom guy in, in Minority Report. Who's that, f- you know, the most famous? Oh, yeah, with all like the, the data around, like Cruise. Right? Yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> you know, Minority Report, you're like, you're sort of, you're the data whiz. You can just like, with a flip of your finger, like, all the data about all of all coronavirus in the world comes up. So you have a power glove. Yes, I you do. have a power glove, and you're just whipping your hands around, uh, seeing all of the data. Yeah, so, I'm looking at it right now. I have my my screens hovering before me. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So now that you have that, what the hell is going on? Um. Oh man, there's a lot. There's a lot happening. I mean, what? So kind of we'll go through like maybe like the four metrics that we track really closely, you know, the tests, the cases, the you know, current hospitalizations uh, and deaths. So with tests, um, things have been going up, you know, a lot. You know, we do many uh, times more tests than we did back um, in the spring outbreak, you know, but it's not localized in quite the same way. So, you know, mm. really the Northeast was where uh, the bulk of the outbreak was, though obviously there were cases other places. and. That means you kind of need testing across a larger percentage of the population. You need a lot of testing. And I think we're starting to bump up against the limits of the current generation of, of testing that we have here in the U.S. And we're hearing that supply chain shortages have become, in particular, uh, pipette tips. Um, we're hearing... There's a pipette tip shortage? Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a necessary part of doing um, the laboratory work of, a, of doing a diagnostic test. A- any part of it, you know, swabs can run out, these different things. There can just not be enough machines and you need the machine to do the test. And then you need the chemicals that go <laughs> into the test. You need the swabs to go into people's noses. And apparently you need the pipette tips to uh, go over your pipettes. I have a pipette tip. <laughs> do you? No mouth pipetting. What? Oh, you, did you guys not take science labs? Is this a science <laughs> joke? Like every chemistry lab, before at the beginning of the semester, you'd have to go through some sort of thing. It was like rules for the lab. And mm-hmm. they would always focus on mouth pipetting. What is mouth pipetting? <laughs> You use a pipette to draw up a little bit of fluid into a, a vial, um, and you, you use a little suction ball to, to, to create that suction. And I guess sometimes people use their mouth. They put it on the end of the pipette and suck. Yeah. And that's very dangerous. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Seems like that could have been a gym-specific um, <laughs> warning. Now, Jim, remember, don't use your mouth this time. <laughs> anyway, okay. Sorry. Anyway, pipette. Tips. So yeah. So anyway, this this is uh, a real problem. All of the big labs, like Quest and LabCorp, uh, are putting out advisories that essentially their turnaround times are growing. So. There's kind of, you know, for people who are going into hospital, perhaps they can get a test more quickly, at least for now. But for people who are just getting tested at a drive-through location or whatever other place out in the world, turnaround times are going, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight days, which of course is what happened back in March and April. So we're kind of back where we were. And the, the real problem is that you, if you want to use testing to get people to stay in their homes, if they may have it, you kind of need fast turnaround times in order to be able to use testing for that kind of like mitigation. Yeah. Because at that and, point, you're kind of through probably the contagious phase. Yeah. So we uh, it, it, we now have hit this point, you know, particularly in the, the hotspots for the outbreak, you know, Arizona, Florida, Texas, but also the smaller uh, southern states. I mean, Louisiana's numbers look really bad, Georgia, South Carolina. Um, testing gets overrun when there's a, a surge like this. You know, people thought they had enough testing capacity. They clearly did not. And infections are are growing across basically the entire southern part of the United States uh, and places that really hadn't been hit very hard in the in the first round. Like, you know, I, I think a really good example is Texas. You know, you look at, uh, we have um, hospitalization numbers for them going back into April. And, you know, there were basically between like 1,000 and 2,000 people hospitalized from, you know, the, basically the beginning of April all the way to about June 8th. They finally break 2,000 um, on June 10th. They break 3,000 on June 19th. They break 4,000 on the 23rd. They break 5,000 on the 27th. They break 6,000. And now they're up to over 9,000 uh, less than a month later. And it doesn't really seem like there's a, a real end point to it right now. So I don't know what that means for these southern states. You know, when we saw stuff like this happening in the Northeast, the, the governors, you know, Republican and Democrat alike, there are, are these Republican governors on the Eastern seaboard, even though it's largely like blue states, you know, they all kind of took pretty similar actions. You know, they locked everything down and took intense measures. And, and you know, that's just not what happened in Texas and Arizona and Florida. Uh, still hasn't happened. So we're really in a different kind of situation right now in a lot of these states than we've really encountered in that we know a lot more about what's happening. We know a lot more uh, about how many people are infected because there's so much more testing. But at the same time, the actions we need to take aren't really all that dependent on testing. <laughs> you know, like once you know you have an outbreak going like this, mm -hmm. you need people to socially distance, you need people to wear masks, you need people to avoid high risk situations, you need people who are showing symptoms to, you know, isolate themselves. Like all these things that we need to have happen don't really seem because of the local politics on the ground, because of the economic pain of the first lockdown and other things. They don't really seem willing to do that. And so now we'll see what happens if your state does that. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree on the, the the point that when you have this many cases, testing becomes less of an issue because you just need to, to lock down, to shut down. Um, we've seen that all over the world. That's the only effective way to stop it when you're in that level of spread. But do you think that the shortage of 
testing is maybe meaning we're really not seeing the full scope of things in any of the states that are being hit hardest right now? I mean, I, I think that's been, you know, a kind of meta point all along um, that there, the data that strikes me um, as the highest quality is the hospitalization data. Mm-hmm. You look at like the cases, you look at tests, like you look at these other things and it's like, oh man, that is clearly uh, a more jagged uh, situation. And that, you know, maybe brings us to talking about deaths a little bit, because one thing that we've been digging into over the last few weeks is that, you know, cases are going way up, hospitalizations are going way up, but deaths have continued to sort of like drift downwards. And for me, the simplest theory is basically we're catching cases perhaps earlier. Um, and so these lag times, which you've been anticipated to be like perhaps a month, uh, maybe are longer. Maybe we don't exactly know what that looks like right now. But if you look at Arizona, Florida, and Texas, which have been kind of the leading edge of mm-hmm. the Sunbelt surge here, what you see is that deaths are clearly rising in Arizona, Florida, and Texas since about the first week of June. And then if you look at the other states, they've been falling. And so really what you have in the death data is the same thing that we actually saw in the case data for a long time during that false plateau. Mm -hmm. We had falling cases in the Northeast and, and in places that weren't having major outbreaks. And then we had rising cases, which were sort of drowned out mm-hmm. um, by what was happening in the Northeast. And what we saw with cases is eventually the Northeast bottoms out, you know, and like New York is having what, like 10 deaths a day at this point. So when the Northeast bottoms out and these other states have continued to rise, you do see the numbers then start to, to trend upwards. And we, we saw that happen first with cases and we saw it with hospitalizations. And I mean, sadly, like there's kind of only one thing to really expect is going to happen with death. Yeah. You know, we learned from Derek on Monday about the stock market and how it could possibly be going up um, over the last few months. And it kind of came down to this idea of like when you look at the averages that we hear on the news updates, those can be going up. But some places are you know, some companies are taking huge hits and others are experiencing huge gains because everything's moving around because of this kind of new economy that's emerged. Um, I'm wondering if, like, as a national average, do you think these numbers are useful or should we just be talking less about whole national numbers and more about just the local pictures? I mean, I think that, you know, the, the problem is the national numbers do matter to things like the supply chains and things like that. The overall draw of the U.S. on the systems of, you know, production that sort of underlie the healthcare system, like that actually is important to know. That said, I mean, this is an infectious disease, you know, I mean, like it's um, the, the, the big question for New Yorkers is, and everybody else in the Northeast and in the Midwest, it's like, do we really think that this will be contained to the South and West if it continues going like this? You know, what, I mean, really what I think should happen is there should be a coordinated national strategy, blah, blah, blah. That's how it should have been with all of these Yeah, things. and when I was a child, I wanted to be a, a fairy. So, like, <laughs> like, we all want things that, that can happen. No, no, it can. Um, it can. It's like, it can. We could have a coordinated national strategy. We well, he, well, here's my question, and it's a it's a question about fatalism. <laughs> and Here we go. 
there was this earlier, I do feel like, at least in my mind, I divide our little experience here of this pandemic into two eras in the U.S. There was this crisis moment where it was like, oh my God, we're realizing this is a problem and we must take draconian measures to get it under control. And then there was this slow slide into just like giving up. And when I, I mean, there's a, I was just talking with Jim about the IMHG models, which I don't know what you think about them, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I followed them a lot at the beginning and it was like, there's going to be a big spike and then it's going to go down. And now Mm -hmm. the IMHG models are like, nope, it's just like a sort of uh, direct line to the top right corner of the map. Like it's just going to go up and up and up. Is there any stopping this? Yeah, I mean, I think on the IHME model specifically, I I think a lot of the other modelers think that they have actually done a quite poor job in terms of modeling this outbreak. I also think that they were some of the big proponents of the wave theory. You know, I mean, in the early days, you know, I was listening to a guy named Dr. Osterholm there uh, at the University of Minnesota. And, you know, way back in April, they laid out basically a few different uh, scenarios. One was the sort of wave model, but they were also like, this is kind of coming out of like influenza research, not coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Um, There was um, this sort of like, oh, well, you know, we'd have a big thing and then it would kind of bump along without new outbreaks. And then there was what they called hills and valleys. And I I feel like hills and valleys is sort of like what it turned out to be. Yeah. You know, or roller coaster, some people. Call yeah, it. yeah, roller coaster, exactly. And if you, you know, it's kind of hills and valleys, but sort of, you know, Mountain West style, where like, at least in the US, you never get back down to sea level. You know, you get, you only get right. down to 3,000 feet, then you go up to 7,000, then you're down to 5,000, then you go up to 10,000, you know, and that's kind of what. A the, roller coaster you can never get off. Yeah. And it's not fun. Yeah, it's not fun. Not fun. Everyone's throwing up. Yeah. Are you worried? Yeah, I mean, I, I I just have the most distinct memory of like being on this run in April and realizing that our strategy was going to fail. And so, okay, our strategy is going to fail. What then? You know, can we actually even as a country face that and say, okay, if we're going to fail to beat this in the way that countries that have you know successfully suppressed the virus have, then what? then what would we do that's different, you know? I mean, if there's one lesson we could have taken from these previous pandemics, it's that cities who avoided, you know, getting hit early tend to overestimate the effectiveness of their interventions. Yeah. And they're sort of underestimate how lucky they got. And I would say as much as people said that, (laughs) it happened again. People just were not prepared for how hard this was going to hit them. Right. I mean, I'm most worried at this point about people in the spiking states. Mm -hmm. Um, My family is in Texas. When I look at these numbers, uh, it's super scary. Is it legitimate to be kind of scared right now? You don't have to tell her how to feel. She tries to get you to tell you. (laughs) That's not your obligation, Alexis. (laughs) Jim, Jim has been having to ask his therapist about, about this podcast. She keeps asking me about emotions. Gather, here's what yeah. I would say. Yeah. That How should I feel, please? What needs to happen hasn't changed for months. The yeah. cases and the deaths and all these things have gone up and down. What needs to happen hasn't changed. Yeah. 
people need to take precautions. I also think people need to live sustainably, particularly because we have no path to suppression right now. Yeah. Shit's going to be going on for so long that we need to be able to live sustainably. And I think that the false choice we've been presented basically uh, is 100% lockdown, never leave your apartment, never have childcare ever again and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Or, you know, live free, die young, you know what I mean? Like that's just bullshit and everybody knows it. And it's, um, I, I think the more that we can get to a place where people are at a, a spot in their life where they're like, okay, I'm taking a lot of precautions and reducing uh, the risk of getting infected and spreading infection. Um, but also I'm in a place where I'm like, okay, I could do this for a year. Like that's where we need to get to, you know? You're speaking um, of the third way. Welcome to the light. <laughs> Jim loves the third way. Third way. Copyright James Hamblin 2020. Um, does that mean, Alexis, that you're staying in Colorado indefinitely? No, I think we're going to stay here for a while. We have the camper van here. We're going to follow like the same protocols and we'll go home and we'll go back to our bubble where we have, you know, a few other families that we bubble with and that allows us to sort of manage our childcare and work, you know, it's going to be tough. We have like the next, the next few months leading up into schools reopening and all those things. Uh, I don't know, guys. Sounds I, like you're never going back to me. That's what I'm taking from that. Yeah. <laughs> never ever going back. Well, um, we eventually have to return the camper van. So that's got to happen. Right. Um, right. You're going to buy it. Uh, they can keep yeah, the deposit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, Alexis, for talking to us this is terrifying but good to know well it's it's be it's beautiful i mean new york is a thing it's yes a triumph yeah well i'm not holding my breath um we'll talk again soon i hope you enjoy your reuniting with with the grandparents it will be good yeah (laughs) all right okay talk to you later talk to you later bye Bye. thanks no path to suppression. Next time we talk, we need to follow up on this idea of no path to suppression because that raises a few questions for me. That's next time on... You're going to finish. Social distance. Mm-hmm. That's it? This show was produced today <laughs> by Alvin Melleth. Please mm-hmm. write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487. If you like the show and you want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com forward slash support us. And if anyone misses the outside world and wide open spaces, Alexis sent us some sound from the outside of his tent on his journey. And this is, we're going to, Just listen to it and imagine you're under the stars. Bye. Bye. (laughs) I didn't know if we were going to listen and then say bye or... No, no, we'll edit it in. The the magic of editing. Oh. You always sound so despondent when you say bye. Yeah, because it's just like I have to go back to writing. (laughs) 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 
So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.